A warning before we start the show. This episode contains the stories of First Nations Australians who have since passed. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay respects to the elders, both past and present, of the Eora Nation on which this podcast has been recorded. We would also like to pay respect to the Gumbangia people, to whom the stories of these tragedies in this episode have occurred, and hope through greater awareness, restitution, peace and justice can be brought to the families and communities of those who have suffered. It's 1994, and just outside the New South Wales Supreme Court, on the bustling city street of Macquarie Street, Sydney, a man surrounded by lawyers, cameras and TV crews begins to build at the door's entrance. A then 25-year-old local labourer called Thomas J Hart has just been acquitted for the suspected murder and disappearance of a teenage boy from a small regional town. In the same month as Thomas J. Hart's acquittal is also the third anniversary of that young teenage boy's murder. His name was Clinton Speedy Duroe. He was a Gumbangia boy and he was just 16 years old when he died. Had his body not been found just outside the outskirts of Bowerville, he would have been 19 years old. But instead, his parents are still left mourning and with even more questions than before. Questions not just of how this could have happened to their child, but of how a seeming disappearance, not only of their son, but two other Aboriginal children from the same town had also disappeared in the same way in just a few months, was seemingly being overlooked by the police, the media, and consequently, the country. Their names were Colleen Walker, aged 16, and Evelyn Greenup, aged four years. How could this have happened? A struggle that continues from well over two decades. Three children going missing, never being able to resolve it to give a resolution to these families. What would have happened if these three children were white? If three young white children had been abducted and murdered on the northern beaches of Sydney, it would make world headlines. But when Aboriginal children are being targeted, the media and public are disinterested. There was no public outrage for them, and the families of these kids are still fighting for justice over 30 years later. So, what value is attached to human life? How much we sympathise with them and take their stories into our hearts comes down to how much we can relate to them. How much like me are they? Who does the legal system serve to protect in crime's largest cases? And who does it neglect? That's on today's episode of Motive and Method. Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. And today we're going to be deep diving into the Bowerville murders. The Bowerville murders involved the homicide of three children, one aged four, two aged 16 years of age. They're Indigenous children. And there was a big delay between the deaths and the investigation of the crimes. 
And to help us understand the dynamics surrounding this, we're going to be speaking with Gary Jubelin, a well-known homicide officer who was engaged in that case. It'd be hard to find a police officer who was more dedicated to catching bad guys than Gary Jubelin. For 35 years, he was the worst nightmare for crooks in New South Wales. Perversely though, his commitment to the job was so great, it ended up destroying his career. When we talk to Gary, what is going to be interesting, we're obviously going to be looking at Barrowville and what happened specifically with those three murders, but we're going to be putting it in the broader context of policing in vulnerable communities because ultimately Barrowville was a vulnerable community and the deaths of the three children certainly hit them hard and, and talking to Gary about how they broke down some of the um, the issues with police, trust issues and how they got to work with that community and Gary became very close with that community as a result of this case. He did a great job and we're also looking at the dynamics between looking at underprivileged communities and how the police may interact with them, unconscious bias perhaps or conscious bias and what would happen if it was three children for four clues or Peppermint Grove in Perth or Turak in Melbourne may that have been treated differently in terms of the involvement with the police and, in a broader sense, the media. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting getting Gary's first-hand experience of working with those types of communities and give us some insight. We were hoping to talk to you about why you think some victims are weighted differently to others, why some get more attention, more resources, and, and what is behind all of that? Because obviously you were very yep. heavily involved with the Barrowville case. Most definitely. And yep. I think you can speak to all of the issues that Tim and I have been talking about in terms of the prejudice that's involved with some of the the reporting and the media interest and the policing interest. Yeah, and the area that you've identified, that has been an area of concern for myself throughout my uh, policing career, that uh, there seems to be, if there's an interest in a particular matter, whether it's through the media, by the community interest, that sort of translates to what response the police give to it. And that should never be. I, I think that all victims of crime should be treated uh, treated equally. I think partly human nature, it's what we can identify with. With Barrable, I, I, I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, I, I think it was because of racial issues. It was Again, it was a marginalised group of people, Aboriginals, and low socioeconomic also played a part. People didn't care because people couldn't relate to the circumstances. Okay, that's something terrible that's happened to this Aboriginal community, but we're not in an Aboriginal community. And I have said if three white children disappeared in the suburb of Sydney... Oh, people would be all over it. And... Again, it's not just being critical of the police because the media would have given a completely different attention. The community would be outraged. Three children all known to each other disappear in the same street over a five-month period and their remains or the clothing they were wearing at the time of their disappearance are all found in generally the same location. Nothing would uh, stop the, the response. Sadly, that didn't happen with Bowerable. Look at the media attention of Cleo Smith in Western Australia. I mean, the press were all over it for days and days and days. When she was found, there was great celebration. But it was round about that time that someone else disappeared, I think, in Western Australia and Australia got no media attention at all. Yeah. Um, it's interesting dynamic. And I honestly believe it is what people can, uh, can relate to. And uh, 
I've seen it time and time again and, and people would often say but police would respond the same way. Police are human, like the organisation is responding to pressure. If there's pressure applied through the media, from the community, the response will be disproportionate to a person that's uh, disappeared that no one cares about. So with Barraville, I mean, you had a strong involvement, an intense yep. involvement. How did that come about? What were the dynamics? I mean, that's you anyway, as yep. I know you, are dedicated, yep. but what was it that caused you to go the extra mile there? I became involved in the disappearance six years after the children disappeared. There was a person charged with murder of one of the, the children, or the charge with two murders, actually. The trial was heard separately, and that was for the murder of Clinton Speedy. This person was acquitted. Then the other charge relating to Evelyn Greenup was no bill. The young child. The young child, four-year-old child. So following the acquittal of the person who was charged with the murder of uh, Clinton Speedy, the community protests about the police response. On the back of that, police commissioner went up, Peter Ryan it was at the time, heard the community's uh, concerns and reinvestigation was commenced. I became involved in that reinvestigation. So... I worked that investigation from uh, late 96 until uh, re I retired in 2019. There's been so many developments that's happened on the, on the investigation. Parliamentary inquiry, protests, the parliamentary inquiry identified failings in the uh, initial police response. We could have done it better. We even had the Commissioner, Mr Scipioni, come up and address the Bowerville community, basically apologise and say, look, we got it wrong, we've learnt from this. On the back of the parliamentary recommendations, training films were created on how we deal with Indigenous communities, barriers to communication overcome. Legislation was changed on the back of their protest and that was the double jeopardy legislation in layman's terms, anyone that was acquitted prior to these changes, anyone that was acquitted of a crime couldn't be retried. With the double jeopardy legislation brought in, it allowed these matters where there's fresh and compelling evidence and it's of community interest in charging the person, further charges could be laid. So it's been a long drawn out battle for the families. But I say here that things stop happening when the families stop protesting. And that is not how the system should work. The victims are the people that should be supported by the system. And sadly, what I've seen in the Bowerville circumstances is nothing actually happens unless they agitate. And that was marching on Parliament four times, protests, getting media attention, going to the media and asking, please, can you tell our story, that type of thing. And it, it shouldn't happen. But you had problems getting the media to tell the story originally. Yep. There just was no interest. Three, three deceased or missing children yeah. and no media interest. And I would, because my role in homicide, there was often I was doing uh, investigations where the media were interested and in those times, I'd be saying, well, yeah, this is an interesting case, but have you considered Barrival? Like we're talking a serial killer has got away with three kids. So you think it's the same person? Yeah. And look, people can uh, argue, but I, I'd say look at the facts. Base, it, base yourself on the facts, the circumstances in which the children disappeared. The chronology. The chronology. And I think we even got uh, some t statistical data from the uh, Bureau of Criminology that... Uh, there's never been a situation where there's been uh, three kids murdered in a country town in Australia and there were separate offenders. Well, uh, yeah, the likelihood, you know, what's yeah. the likelihood of it being two offenders working simultaneously, yeah. same same type of offence, same situation, 
So is it the fact that they were maybe different ages, the victimology was different that threw the original investigators well, off? Talking to you two guys with your ex expertise, I'll, I'll break, it down, break it down this way, that uh, they lived in the same street, they were known to each other over a five-month period. The evidence is overwhelming that they're, they're related. So, yeah, that narrows the focus down. But again... Why weren't the resources put into the investigation to start with? And, you know, I, I think it was very telling when uh, Mr Scipione came up and apologised. Like, police, uh, we don't hand out the apologies very often and certainly the commissioner coming to the community. And I think it was it was beneficial for everyone that uh, acknowledging we could have done it differently. Do you think the apathy, want of a better term, was driven by racial considerations? I mean, you mentioned racism yeah. earlier on. Uh, most definitely, and I, I don't sit here and just you know, oh, this happened because of, of race, racism. These these are the facts of the situation. When I first came up there in ninety six, ninety seven, the families told me that, uh, yeah, nobody cares, and I, I didn't believe them. And then I saw what happened and the response. And I, I can say this because I worked in homicide. I was working homicides for a very long time. Most of your career, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the response to that investigation was disproportionate in a negative sense to normal responses. In fact, the investigation wasn't even led by a person with homicide experience. And uh, I'm not being critical of this person. This person was from the child protection uh, unit and he was running a very complex, you know, Different yeah. training, different experience, exactly. but not relevant to a triple homicide. Exactly. And, like, we were learning a lot of things about, bearing in mind this is the 90s, so serial killing, there wasn't a lot of expertise uh, around at that time. But we learnt a lot in the way that we investigate serial killings. But we missed opportunities. I'd say investigative opportunities were missed in the early days because we didn't appreciate what we were dealing with there and I say that is race came into it. I'd also acknowledge that socioeconomic, it's, they didn't have any powerful, you know, lobbyists pushing for them. And this is my unconscious bias that can play into, uh, you know, have a negative effect on the investigation. I went up to the uh, the community, the Bowerville, that's on the outskirts of um, the Bowerville Township in, the, in the area referred to as a mission. I've gone up there. I'm a white detective from the city, white homicide detective going up there. Everyone could speak English, so I didn't think there was any barrier to communication. But what I've learned, yeah, and it's, I've been hit over the head with it a, a few times, and and that was part of my learning, was that uh, they uh, Aboriginal English is different in subtle ways to the English that we speak, the way that they speak within their their community. These are little things that I learned, and these can play in play into uh, part. But and communication. Yeah. Because you might think you're sort of on the same page, but you could be way off tap. Way off tap. If there's that pressure from the media and the interest from the public, it goes to that next level. And then, yeah, all stops are pulled out to uh, make sure you solve it. So I definitely think the type of victim uh, play, plays a part. Then you, you look at William Tyrrell and uh, because people can relate, Everyone's interested in it. Politicians are interested in all the senior police are interested. Everyone's got this interest in this Young particular. child, male, yep. white, yep. Spider-Man suit, cute. 
Yeah. All of those sorts of things. And he was all of those things. But uh, And just that angelic photo of him. Yeah. There, I, I think that attracts the media. I now work in the media and so I get an understanding of, uh, you know, where the media is coming from. And I'm not being critical of the of the media, but they, the media f- certainly uh, respond to what the community are interested in. So that seems, uh, is it the dog wag, is it tail wagging the dog? I'm not sure. Like if the media put uh, yeah, more about the bearable people, would the community be interested or would people just stop reading the media? I don't know. But that plays a part in what gets covered as well. I mean, you've mentioned unconscious bias and I think we all have that and it can shape the way you, you investigate things. But what about conscious bias? What about where you may have people within the police force, for example, yeah. who have a definite conscious bias against a particular subgroup of people and they act out accordingly? I think as an organisation, I didn't see it. I, I didn't see it as an organisation, but I'd certainly say that uh, certain individuals hold those feelings, that conscious bias, whether it's deliberately or because of that, yeah, overt bias, they impact on the investigation. I, I'm, it possibly could, possibly could happen. Let's look back at the Cabramatta in the in the eighties with the uh, drug trade going on there. The Powder Express. E- exactly. Did we put the proper resourcing into that at that time, or was it because well, they're Vietnamese, they'll look after after themselves, the community there, and they they had to bring more troops in when it just became outrageous. You could walk down the street and buy anyone buy heroin. So how could the police say they can't identify? Well, I mentioned the Powder Express because that's how it was known. Yep. The rumour was that you could catch a train to Cabramatta, get off the train, go up the stairs, do the transaction on the cross bridge, go down the other stairs and get the train back to town. I've had people, guests on the podcast that have uh, talked about that uh, that time and it was pretty much that simple. So, there's there's racism in any organisation, so I'm not going to yeah tip the bucket on the police. But you've got a certain type of person that joins the police, and uh, that might attract racism for for whatever reason. And if you hold that bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it can impact on an investigation. That's one thing I'm very comfortable in saying. Can I ask you this then? I mean, you're a distinguished homicide detective. How did you approach a homicide? You get the file. Yep. and you're in charge of it all, what's the next step? How do you actually do all that? Okay, Bre- breaking it down, if, if you talk from, from the start, because in homicide, invariably your starting point would be you'd get a phone call and you go to a, a crime scene. Identifying the crime scene is step one, and it sounds obvious, but mistakes are made when crime scenes haven't been identified. Then you look at the victim and you look at victimology. Victimology is who that person might be associated with because quite often that leads you to uh, point you in a direction. You interpret the crime scene, what's taken place at the crime scene, like was it planned, did it just escalate here? You're looking at motives, was it revenge, was it sexually motivated, was it a robbery gone wrong? So you're taking all that all in as a, uh, as a detective but then paperwork and record keeping is very much. So set up an incident room, Tim, and all the information comes in. You've got to make sure that you're assessing all the information and then the lines of inquiry follow on from that. Like if you were seen walking away from the crime scene, we've got to identify this person. That might be a job and it builds builds from there. You build a case and eventually you get an offender. 
So what about with Barrowville then? You obviously came in a number of years later, yeah. which means that there would have been different hurdles to face. You've yeah. got to break down the community boundaries that have inevitably built up through distrust with the police, the invest original investigations and the, the flaws that were were evident to the community yeah. within those. So how do you come into an investigation later and still yeah. progress it? We, I, I was fortunate when uh, the reinvestigation commenced, there was a person by the name of Rod Lynch who had worked very heavily on the Ivan Malak case and he was heading up the strike force to start with. He cautioned us to have an open mind, so that was a starting point. Even though a lot of evidence pointed to one particular person, he wanted us to explore all the other possibilities, which is smart, smart policing. Then you look at what we've got. I was I was disappointed. I, I had I'd been in homicide for a little while at that stage. I knew what a good homicide investigation should look like, and I was disappointed about the lack of detail in the in the statements and what jumped out at me. In a lot of the statements that were taken, not much effort was put in there. Like a half-page statement to be presented, I'm interviewing that person or people on the strike force, not just me, re-interview that person six years later and the statement might turn into a 10-page statement. Well, that's what I was wondering, whether yeah. half a page was the norm. Yeah. But uh, you've lost a lot of information lost, in those six years. You've lost a lot of information. Then you've got to offer explanation if it comes to court. Well, how come six years ago this person said that and then... Yeah, you know, six years later, you come in and you get a ten-page statement. Were you, uh, um, you know, coaxing, uh, coaching the uh, the witness? So you've got to explain that, and we'd have to explain it because it's, it's been through a lot of inquiries and and court matters. No, it was the way that we communicated with the uh, the victims, and the communication was about first of all letting them feel comfortable um, in our presence because the division between uh, black communities and police, well, it's historical and well known. So you went in and they didn't trust you to start not, with? Not at, not at all. And uh, I'd go in there and uh, I got growled at and, uh, yeah, you're a white man, you're a cop, why would I trust you? That was that was the attitude to start with and for good reason. Yeah. But I realised and, and the persons that I was working with, in particular Jason Evers, who I worked on the case for 10 years with, realised they weren't angry at us, they were angry at what we represented. So that took a lot away the personal you know, battle between us. I go, yeah, that's cool. I don't like some cops either. <laughs> yeah, no. basically, basically like that. Sit down, communicate where they felt comfortable talking to us and taking the time to understand the community, understand the dynamics of the community. Yeah, I went up there as a homicide detective from the city and I'd make appointments for a nine o'clock meeting to get this statement. No one had ever turned up to any of the meetings. And uh, <laughs> then I got slapped on the back of the head by uh, one of the elders and said, this is Koori time up here. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, little little things like that. And I just had to change the way I approached the matter and got benefits from there. So, Did you keep your situation room going all that time? Basically, um, we had uh, we were running a, 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 the incident room, or situation incident room, same thing, um, up there at uh, Maxville Police Station. We had to dig up all the old investigation. We had to review all the old material, get it all together. And so it was rooms full of paperwork, basically. You, the amount of paperwork is unbelievable in, in an investigation. This has predated anything going on computer. So it's a card system. Yeah. So you could imagine card system looking for Tim. Oh, we'll check T. Oh, yes, there's Tim's statement. It's such and such. Then we moved it back to Sydney. Then... There wasn't a lot of interest in keeping the investigation running and uh, 
we kept pushing, the families kept pushing it, the family's agitation, and that kept it running. But we never got an incident room again. Why do you think there was that disinterest? Well, there wasn't some... Um, we had a go. No one could criticise us. Like the re- I think the police were open to criticism before the reinvestigation uh, was announced. The reinvestigation was thorough and we were knocked back. Um, we, we made a submission to the DPP to have this person ex officio indicted. It was knocked back. That was 98, I think, that occurred. Now, we could have stopped then and not done another thing and no one could really criticise us because yeah. we'd, we'd ticked all the boxes, we'd done all the work. But myself and uh, Jason Evers felt there was more life in the matter and there was just such an outrageous injustice that we had to keep pushing. That coupled with the fact that the families became aware that unless they protest, nothing's going to happen. So they, with them protesting, us willingly assist wherever we could. Um, we kept the momentum going and uh, we had inquests, parliamentary inquiries and uh, and all sorts of uh, things. It's always the way though, isn't it? Like working with any kind yeah. of um, innocent space or injustice space, yeah. every victim, potentially miscarriage of justice, whatever it is, that always needs a champion. Yep. It's, and it can be the family, it can be the police, yeah. it can be a lawyer, the media. There always has to be somebody agitating or nothing happens. Yeah. Well, you need that champion every time. You, you bring up an interest, interesting point like um, the Teacher's Pet podcast yes. and the interest that uh, got in, in regards to uh, that case. I'm confident in sitting here saying if that didn't get the spotlight on it, it wouldn't have... Uh, ended up with the result where you've got a person uh, convicted. Well, you have all that experience as a policeman, but I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, 40 years on. Yeah. DPP knocked back that brief of evidence twice, but the police... (laughs) So I think the public think that it it got up because of the teacher's pet. Well, actually, the third brief of evidence was submitted before the teacher's pet was released, but the pressure of the teacher's pet meant that the DPP could no longer... Ignore it. Yeah, it's it's that uh, that combination. But look, I I will say, and I, I'm again, I'm not being critical of the police. It, it's just human nature. I worked in homicide. I worked in unsolved homicide. I know when inquiries are being made about a brief that might be in the cupboard in boxes. When inquiries are made, they get looked at. Now, I. Yeah, it's a difficult thing because there are some cases that uh, yeah, you could look at them every single day and you're not going to make, make progress. But I can say that if there is some interest in a case, that's when the, folder, the boxes get opened and uh, they get worked on. And uh, again, if no, one's, uh, if no one's making noise about, and especially these, yeah, we're talking 40 years ago, if the relatives have passed on and uh, who's going to be championing the cause of, the cause of the victim? But uh, having said that, there's been some great success with um, some cold cases um, of recent times yes. and uh, you, you see people getting, getting locked up. I think that sends out a very strong message. But uh, the damage is quite often done when the initial offence occurs and it's not properly resourced. If in the limits that you have with resourcing... I'd always maintain that uh, the best time to pour your best team in and, and the most work is at the, that right at the early beginning. stage. And if you get it pointed in the right direction, because there was times in homicide where we got overwhelmed. There was just a sequence of uh, serious crimes or whatever, overwhelmed. I was always of the belief that, okay, even if we're 
short on uh, short on numbers. Let's make sure we do the initial response properly, and that uh, that prevents. Uh, well, then you've got a baseline to work from. And uh, one of the things that Xanth and I worked on a couple of years ago now was um, Buried Secrets. It was a documentary looking at Ivan Milat. And again, no criticism of the AFP or anyone, but it's clear a lot of evidence just kind of vaporised. So even if you have the impetus to revisit these things, if you don't have that baseline of uh, information and material, there's nowhere to go. But do you think we've actually learned anything? Like if Bowerville happened today because it's such a... It's the epitome of a case, you know, where the families yeah. and the victims were let down. Yeah. If Barrowville happened today, would the response be different? Have we learnt? Do we, do we have more equity in the system mm. now? I would like to think we've we've learnt. We we should have learnt from uh, from mistakes and issues that occurred in the past. But I, I can't be certain. And uh, I I say with Barrowville that uh, yeah, if if they if they're not agitating, nothing's happening. And that's what I saw over. Uh, pattern for uh, 25 years. Do you think Barrowville will ever be solved? Hard question. But... Yeah, well, I uh, there's a question I get asked often. I think it still can be solved, but it won't be solved just with the families pushing or ag- agitating. It needs people to take a step back and go, why is this not working? Now, they brought in the new legislation, the double jeopardy legislation, and the interpretation of the word adduced became critical to the Court of Criminal Appeal. Was the evidence available or was it admitted? So it came down to a, a debate, what is the meaning of the word adduced? Yeah. That virtually became the barrier to a person being prosecuted or at least presented. One word. Uh, one, one word, the inter- legal interpretation of what the word adduced means now. But we see this all the time, like the law moves a glacial pace. Yeah. And especially science uh, moves very quickly. Um, and we've seen that. I mean, Kathleen Forbig's case, accused of murdering yep. three children, the manslaughter, and she's currently sure. in prison for that now. And we've got the whole hiatus around, you know, the potential uh, genetic markers which predisposed at least the two, two daughters to early death. And now that has been supported by world-leading scientists, totally um, objective in their analysis. So that's now, again, before the courts, yep. and we'll find out next year whether, you know, what the outcome will be. But the law is glacial. It's so slow in its response. It's not keeping up with changes in investigation, changes in science. You know, that's how do we manage that when it's not serving the community? I I know what you're saying. And I I think, yeah, the law is very rigid in their approach. Well, they want a final answer, finality. They don't want to keep repeating the same case. It's like, this is done, let's move on. I know, but I, I, I think the law should be if the criminal law is working it's finding out who's responsible for these crimes now they can argue well that's not what it's about it's you know all sorts of uh, legal and intellectual arguments but with uh with bearable when we were debating the double jeopardy legislation the argument the argument against the legislation coming in was this will turn the legal system upside down. But is that it, a bad thing? Surely uh, uh, it might but, need turning upside down then the if that's fun, the case. The funny thing is it was everyone running around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. We brought the legislation in. <laughs> the sky didn't fall the in. Sky, we're all still standing here. The like, penny's ducked for cover. Has, yeah. anyone, has anyone else actually been prosecuted under that double jeopardy? No, no. So it's yeah, it's it sits there. I've I've, I've looked at cases and and give uh, opinion on on different cases, but uh, at this point in time, and the legislation, and it's dangerous when you're changing the legislation for a specific case. But when it was brought in, they they brought in the legislation 
bearing in mind the Barrable case, that this is one that can work. And I, I understand the safeguards that they put in with the double jeopardy legislation were very strong because you can't have, and this is what they were worried about, I'm the homicide detective, Tim's done a murder, I'm just going to do a half. Don't me. tell I'm everyone. Gary, you're his friend. Frame. You just dropped him right in it. <laughs> so if we, like, if the uh, legislation that was brought in for Barrable, they thought it's going to, change everything. But nothing nothing has flowed on from it. Like nothing has, has happened because of it. But it's available. It's, 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 it's available. available. And the, the safe... Oh, sorry. And that's what I was going to say. When I put my crappy murder brief in against Tim and then uh, we lose the court, I go, oh, well, I'll do it properly. They prevented that because it had to be done with proper due diligence at yes. the start. So all the safeguards were put in place and I don't know what the fear was for, but it's like the courts, we're infallible. We can't we can't be wrong. One thing that I always found intriguing as a, a homicide detective, I would have people convicted. Of, most people, you know, will contest a, a murder charge. You get them convicted and invariably they will appeal and they'll get access to the appeal. Basically what the double jeopardy legislation was saying and that line being the court's got it wrong, this man is not uh, not guilty. That's all we're asking for with um, Barrable. They've acquitted the person. Well, hey, you got it wrong. Can we have that person retried? But that person wasn't ultimately retried. No. And was, no, no. So no one, so currently Barrable is still obviously unsolved. It's, it's, it's still unsolved. I, I personally think the best way to go for Barrable is to refer it to the uh, coroner and now people might say, well, what's the purpose of referring it to the coroner? The families want answers on what's happened to their, their children. Perhaps a coroner can give them answers, like with the Leveson matter. A person had been acquitted and we referred it to the uh, coroner, uh, coroner and they got their son's body back. With Barrable, they still want answers. They've put their faith in the justice system, the court, uh, uh, yeah, the criminal courts. They haven't given them answers because they've told them the person is not responsible. Perhaps it needs to go back to the coroner's, coroner's court for the answers for at least some answers and some validation. Well, that's what yeah. the families always want, isn't it? They always yeah. want to know why. Yeah, and it, it, it does get down to that point and it passes on from generation to generation and that's the sadness I see, not just with Barrable. There's so many other cases that uh, I, I'm talking Barrable because that's one I'm directly involved in, but there's so many other cases where that uh, that trauma continues on to the next generation. Yeah, I see it all the time. Yeah, me too. Oh, of course, you, you guys would, yeah. Well, I think that probably covered off everything that we were hoping to get out of you today because we really and want... more. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. You're always, you always press the button and start yeah, me that's up. Yeah, well, that's what we it. said. We were just going to wind you yeah, up wind and up. let and you And furthermore... Go. Yeah. No, you're, no, well, you're a great guest and witness. Well, <laughs> thank you uh, for having me on and, and thanks you guys coming on uh, on my podcast. But uh, I hope all the best with your uh, podcast. Thank you I'm, so much. Uh, I, I reckon it's going to be fascinating. Well, hopefully, and you never know, it might even encourage people to look at Coronal Inquest for Barrowville if that's the next step if we can have some good to come out of this then then that would be that would be the best outcome I, I, I think and I, I know from myself going into the area of like a true crime podcast and all that you don't want to glorify crime but I like open discussions about the criminal yes. justice system because quite often it's no, you're not smart enough to understand what's gone on there or get swept under the carpet, and that's where I think problem problems occur. It needs so. to be challenged and ventilated, and I say with great respect to our audience, people out there, yeah. not a lot of people know how it works. Yeah. And I guess that's the purpose of what we're trying to do, yeah. what you've done. Yeah. 
uh, is to educate people Shine so they have light. a better understanding. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, that's a great uh, great thing. So thanks for uh, having me on. Well, as I expected, it was fascinating hearing Gary's insight as to how he worked with the Barrowville community. Um, I think that many of us wouldn't understand the difficulties that police officers have, especially when trust has been lost, as it had been in this case. Yes. And so what they had to do to rebuild that trust to really get the community on side, because ultimately they needed the community's help to try and solve. I mean, this case is, is still unsolved, but try and move that case forward for the benefit of the victims and their families. It's always about, I think, and you're the criminologist, but from the cases I've worked with, if you can engage the community as part of the process, the police and the media. And what comes out of our conversation with Gary is that certainly the police weren't engaged for a while. Uh, there was a lot of disinterest, it would seem, initially from the media. And it took a long time to get those dynamics actually motivated and moving. Yeah. And I mean, as we pointed out, you know, if this was three young people in a wealthy, affluent neighbourhood, um, a Caucasian neighbourhood. If these were three, you know, white children that had been murdered, this would have been all, this would have been international news, let alone national news. So, what is it about the? You know, is it is it driven by the media? Is it driven by the public? You know, who decides? what is a, a newsworthy story? And I think, you know, that's that's also an important discussion because we still see that replicated. You know, you get white woman syndrome, you know, if it's a case about a young, attractive white woman, people are interested in it. If it's not, you know, if it's a different type of victim, then they get less media coverage and less public interest. And it's like, how do we weigh human life and what kind of attributes are some of these victims have that make us more interested in some cases than others? I think at a generic level, it's all about anomie. We don't relate to these people in the way that we should relate to them. And there's a lot of discussion, you know, in recent times about unconscious bias and so on. I think it's real. Uh, and here's the proof of that. Thank you so much for listening to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And if you love this app, please follow us, give us a five-star review. You can subscribe to the channel and feed and recommend us to your friends. And you can also set up a bell notification which alerts you when a new app drops. We look forward to hearing from you.